0: To see one in person, it's almost alien. You know, in those sci-fi films, Mm -hmm. you encounter an alien weapon. It feels dangerous to be around one. And I heard an anecdote of a man who fished bluefin in the 60s off of Prince Edward Island. And the fish was tired after hours and hours of fighting, but the skipper gave him a gaff to hold the fish's tail in place. And he held the gaff and the fish gave a tiny little flick and he said this tiny little muscle flick was so powerful, it tore the gaff from his hands, this wooden-handled hook, and smashed it against the side of the boat and broke it in half. The scale and the strength of these creatures is hard to comprehend for us earth-dwelling beings.
1: That's best-selling author Karen Pynchon talking about bluefin tuna, the topic of her new book, Kings of Their Own Ocean, tuna obsession and the future of our seas. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. I'm your host, David McGuffin. A couple of quick notes before we get to our fascinating conversation with Karen Pynchon. Geographica, the annual Royal Canadian Geographical Society Fellows Dinner, is coming up on November 15th at the Canadian War Museum here in Ottawa. It's always a fun evening, you can get your tickets at rcgs.org forward slash And you can also take part in the silent auction, even if you don't come. Go to rcgsauction.com. All proceeds go to help the many great research and education projects supported by the RCGS. Okay, Karen Pynchon. She's an award-winning investigative journalist whose work has appeared in Canadian Geographic, along with Scientific American, Vox, The Globe and Mail, The Walrus, National Geographic, the Canadian Press, and Maclean's Magazine. She teaches narrative nonfiction writing in the Masters of Fine Arts program at the University of King's College in Halifax, my alma mater. Shout out to King's journalism. Her new book, Kings of Their Own Ocean, is the incredible tale of an incredible fish, the bluefin tuna, which has gone from being the cornerstone of the Roman Empire to the victim of near-extinction in the past century in our own boom-bust economy. Ultimately, this is a heartening wildlife story, filled with an incredible cast of characters about how regular people, along with industry, scientists, and government, can band together and bring back a species from the brink of being completely wiped out. So let's get to it. Karen Pynchon. Welcome to the Explore podcast.
0: Thanks for having me here.
1: Well, it's really great to have you here. And I want to thank you because our first season was all in this room or in the Andache Fellows Reading Room here at 50 Sussex and the pandemic shifted us away from that. So you have brought us back in. So
0: It's so pretty. I feel very lucky.
1: Yeah. It's a lot. Wood, wood paneled room. We got a fire going in the background.
0: Yeah, a few it? too many pictures of men.
1: Yeah, it is. uh There is a white male aspect to the, <laughs> which we're hopefully updating. We're
0: working on it. <laughs> we
1: are working on it. So Bluefin Tuna. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm going to be honest. I hadn't really given a lot of thought about Bluefin Tuna until I read your book, Kings of Their Own Ocean, which is an amazing book. And I encourage everyone to pick it up. But uh Tuna, I think for me is either sushi or it's um, it's in a can. And having read your book about how amazing these fish are, the fact that they're packed into these little cans is now breaking my heart. Anyway, so where where do where do where do you and bluefin tuna come together? Like, where does this relationship start?
0: Yeah, I guess it starts in a very tangible, physical way, in that I've always caught fish mm-hmm. you know i don't remember the time i first caught a fish because it was almost before i had memory nice and so in that way i know what it's like to to gut a fish to touch a fish mm-hmm. to feel that first strike yeah that's a very kind of primal memory for me but then there's also this more abstracted bigger mission-focused element of journalism, which is that commodification of a giant fish into tiny cans. Yeah. This idea that I only ever understood the bluefin as a fish that was endangered. Right. Right? It was it was this amorphous idea of a fish, mm-hmm. more so than, than an actual creature that lived and I had had contact with. And it seemed like there was so much opportunity in in reconciling that abstract idea with the communities that have caught this fish that have depended on this fish on humanity's really profound relationship with you know how do you catch a fish that weighs more than a horse yeah how can that power us you know as a species how can that in the roman empire catching these fish fueled armies that spread across europe it yeah. was, you know, in some ways, maybe the first industrialized fishing business.
1: Yeah. I love those little details in your book, too. Yeah. Like the, the Romans would salt the, the bluefin tuna and that it, so they could ship it. Yeah. And they the would pack it into
0: amphora and they would yeah. ferment even the viscera and the bones and the heads into garum. Yeah. And it was this incredible condiment. Yeah. One, I guess one of the first contacts I might have had with bluefin was when I was living in Vancouver with my husband. And I made garum for the first time out of little fish, like smelt and and herring. It's like a fermented fish sauce, similar to what you would have with, say, Thai or Vietnamese food. Okay, yeah, yeah. And that's very much what garum was, extremely high in, in minerals, in amino acids. And one of the problems with this book is that, you know, it could go almost anywhere in the world, yeah. you can go almost anywhere in history, yeah. so how do you actually tell a story that's readable and fun and compelling, right. and like my favorite books, right, yeah. like Sebastian Younger's The Perfect Storm, mm-hmm. these types of works by Eric Larson, you know, these are the types of works that both show us about the world and how it works, but yeah. are also, don't feel like homework. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I know, and you, and the, the the amazing thing you do is you do
0: Bring us down to
1: a few characters here that carry mm-hmm. us through this history of this bit Before we get to those, though, can you just describe the bluefin tuna for people who don't who don't know it beyond something that's on, yeah. on a roll of rice in a can of tuna?
0: Absolutely, yeah. So generally, there's three species globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that I address more specifically in the book is Atlantic bluefin. Right. And this is a, a tuna that evolved about 65 to 55 million years ago in the Tethys Sea, which was the precursor to the Mediterranean. And that's the been the assumption is that because this fish evolved in warm waters and then the Tethys Sea opened up, And then it gave the fish the ability to enter the North Atlantic to get these big, delicious, juicy squid and fatty fish like mackerel and herring. And it eventually evolved its body with a system called the Riti Mirabile system. And that's essentially a counter-current heat exchanger. It's extremely unique in the fish world. And it allows the bluefin... To take in water, it, it swims with its mouth open, and so the water cold ocean water passes over its gills. And instead of losing heat to that cold ocean water, it essentially cycles its own body heat back into its eyes, its brain, its body. That gives it the ability to reach these extraordinary car-like speeds yeah. in the water. It allows its vision is extraordinary. It has the ability to to find its way in the world, science some scientists think it's using a degree of electromagnetism in it in literally in its bones, the ability to sense the Earth's magnetic currents. Oh, amazing. Using iron in in deposits in its head.
1: So migratory birds, I think, is similar, mm-hmm. right? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah.
0: And and then, you know, it can live between, say, 50 to 30 years, but like all natural creatures, you know, Mm -hmm. who knows how old the oldest bluefin was, but it starts as one of 30 million eggs from a single tuna, like a single huge giant bluefin, maybe only two of those will make it to adulthood. And it will do these extraordinary swims from say Bimini up to Norway. It can travel many tens of thousands of kilometers in a month, in two months, wow! It's extraordinarily fast. So marathons a day. Yeah, marathons. yeah. And right. because it's highly migratory, because it can go so deep and travel so widely, we've always, as a species, admired it, but we've never really, and still don't, truly understand it. Right. It's always just been this kind of grasping at knowledge. Yeah. As much as it suited our needs for using it.
1: Yeah. It just it strikes me listening to you and reading your book that they're like some finely tuned like Olympic athlete almost these things yeah
0: like. and to see one in person is it's almost alien it's like you know in those sci-fi films mm-hmm. you encounter an alien weapon it it feels that way it feels dangerous to be around one and I heard an anecdote last night at the talk I gave here at the Canadian Geographic headquarters mm-hmm. that of a man who fished bluefin in the 60s, off of Prince Edward Island, and the fish was tired after hours and hours of fighting, but the skipper gave him a gaff to hold the fish's tail in place. And he held the gaff, and the fish gave a tiny little flick. And he said this tiny little muscle flick was so powerful, it tore the gaff from his hands, this wooden-handled hook, and smashed it against the side of the boat and broke it in half. Just this tiny little I think the scale and the strength of these creatures is is hard to comprehend for us earth dwelling beings. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah.
1: There's just something very taut
0: about them too. And like mm-hmm. you sort of think
1: of fish as being more fluid and stuff, but they seem like just, you know, like yeah. sprung like
0: the bodybuilders of the <laughs> exactly. fish world. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's amazing.
1: So the central characters of this book. One's actually a bluefin tuna, which I was impressed that you managed to pull that off, but named Amelia.
0: Yeah, she was dubbed Amelia by a female scientist named Molly Lutkovich, who first introduced me to this story. And she was called that after Amelia Earhart, the famous female aviator, who, as I write in the book, crossed the Atlantic on currents of a different kind. Yeah, nice. And Amelia had this transatlantic journey. That the scientist, when I first heard about this story, she was so stoked. She was extremely excited Mm -hmm. about the fact that this one female fish had been tagged using plastic tags twice in her lifetime and then had been caught 14 years later. So she was first tagged in 2004, then tagged in 2007, and then caught in the Mediterranean after leaving the spawning grounds and that this number of data points on one fish is extremely rare and especially over this period of time. And so she was extremely excited. And in some ways writing this book was my journey to understand why that's meaningful Mm -hmm. and all the human people and political systems and criminal networks and everything that that one fish's lifetime that that one fish's physical body would have brushed up against and in some ways it was like solving a mystery yeah you know having a question at the beginning and and striving towards some kind of a satisfying answer
1: yeah yeah but she's yeah i mean she's roaming these oceans like fully roaming the Atlantic. Yeah. I want to talk about Al Anderson now Mm -hmm. because his life kind of spans an arc for this fish.
0: Yeah. Al Anderson was a notorious skipper on the Rhode Island docks. He lived in Narragansett, Rhode Island. And, you know, I'd never been to Rhode Island when I first heard about Al Anderson. I first heard about him when, in relation to this fish, he tagged the fish in 2004 Back when she was, you know, only a couple of hand spans length, she was a little baby tuna, probably only a year or two old. They call them footballs because of their, their ovoid shape. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And he tagged her along with 50 other fish, little juvenile bluefin tuna that day, set them free with these little kind of skinny, they're either orange or yellow tags and just put, put this fish back in the ocean. And he was obsessed with fish tagging. In the duration of his life, he tagged more than 60,000 fish. More than 5,000 of those were bluefin tuna. This is more tagged fish than any single person had ever tagged or will ever tag again solo.
1: So that was over a period of like 60 years, 50 years?
0: That was over a period from the 60s to about 20... 18 when he died.
1: That's like over a thousand
0: years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. He would always be out on the water, and if he wasn't out on the water, he was in his basement listening to the marine radio, hearing about where other captains were catching their fish. <laughs> he w- loved science. He loved the the validation that corresponding with scientists gave him. And I, I could see all this from his obituary. I could also see that on these online obituaries that you read. For every person who said he was an amazing fisherman, I fished with him, he was incredible, there would always be a couple saying, you know, the nicest thing you can say about him is that if he was on the water with you, he would have an effect on your day. <laughs> <laughs> you explain that a Talk more. about damning with <laughs> faint praise, right? That people would say, you know there were always people who had recollections of him screaming at them because they had crossed lines and the lines had broken. It was never his fault, right? There was obviously this big crack in his soul. Yeah. And for a writer, for a chronicler of the human condition, that is tantalizing, right? You know, what drove him, what, 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 why was he catching this fish and setting it free at a time when this fish was worth, you know, $5,000, $10,000, $50,000 for a single fish wow. in the 80s and 90s? And and I was lucky enough that when I sent a handwritten letter to his widow, Daryl, a, a year after he died, she said she felt as if his... I'm going to say that again because my, na- my jewelry cracked. Um, she felt as if he was speaking to her from beyond the grave, that she didn't really want to talk to me. But she, when she got my letter, she felt as if he spoke to her and said, this is an opportunity to tell the world about the work I spent my life doing. Wow. And she felt an obligation to respond. And I ended up becoming quite close with her to the point where she shared elements about Al's life and his extremely difficult childhood about getting closer to the answer to that question of like, why would a person be so obsessed with catching and tagging fish? Yeah. And to the point where eventually I stayed at her house, my right. son slept in her guest room, And and right now I'm actually helping her figure out how to donate his extensive archive to the University of Rhode Island. Oh, cool. And that's a kind of, you know, entanglement with a source that I've never had in my career so far. And it's, it's, it's thorny, but it's also extremely, what an extreme privilege.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I guess the difference between writing a book and sort of daily journalism too, isn't it? Like you are, you know, it's going to happen to some degree. Um, so this, this is the '60s. He's, I mean, he's a very successful guide. Like he's mm-hmm. got a temper and all sorts of other things, but yeah. he's good at what he does. Right? Well,
0: and up to a certain extent, he was. Um he was a high school biology teacher. Yeah. This was something he would do after school. He would arrive haggard after being out on the water until 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. And he would kind of drag on his suit and tie and go in and teach teenagers high school biology.
1: <laughs> right. So this is the scientist side of him. Really. Yeah. yeah. And this is where that comes from. Because
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's no one else. Is there anyone else doing this who's like a... Fish guide, commercial fisher, like is that going on anywhere else?
0: It's happening kind of sporadically along the Canadian Mm -hmm. and U.S. seaboard, but it's mostly happening by by scientists. You know, fish tagging is a niche area of expertise because for a long time, for decades, our understanding of the ocean lagged behind our understanding of the Earth and its terrestrial environments. Right? It's easier to study a flock of birds or a herd of elk than it is to, you know, how do you do it? And it wasn't until these advancements on, on fish tagging, and then you all of a sudden you have microchips, you know, imagine what a revolution having these microchips was into Mm. being able to track these creatures. And so it wasn't until there was this rising appetite for bluefin tuna in the 1970s, driven by demand in Japan that all of a sudden you have this intersection of Al's obsession with something that suddenly now the world wants.
1: Right, right. So he's, so he's, uh, yeah, he's at this point. So wh- what is he learning as he's tagging initially? And, and is, he's basically holding on to this information himself, or is he like offering it up to others? Or?
0: Yeah, so he's participating in a game fish tagging program with the International Game Fish Association, based in the States. And they had a trophy for who tagged the most number of tuna every year. And they almost decided to retire the award because it was just him who was winning it. (laughs) He loved trophies, right? That's a clue. Why would a person, single person, need these trophies so much? And he, at the time, the understanding was that there were two main populations of bluefin tuna. One was in the Western Atlantic, one was in the Eastern Atlantic, that some fish would cross back and forth, but generally that they were two distinct populations. Mm -hmm. And one of his close collaborators was a man named Frank Mather, who was based at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And Frank had these tags that would cross the Atlantic that broke these early developing models of how bluefin tuna moved around and migrated and spawned. And that was valuable data for fisheries managers because you need to know where the fish are. You need to know how many of them there are to determine how many you can catch and still have fish in the ocean. And in the 1970s, it was clear that our appetites for these fish paired with, you know, the rise of refrigeration and trawlers and... Engines that these boats could go out huge distances from shore. And tuna are out in this big gray zone of, you know, it's not owned by anyone. It's past that 200-mile limit. And so, you know, who's going to take care of it if we're all not just taking care of it individually as countries? And what Al's early tags were showing, that fish he was tagging off Rhode Island they would show up in the bay of biscay off france they would show up all over the world and
1: consistently
0: consistently yeah but this data based on how fish were managed at the time this information wasn't working its way into the models because it wasn't convenient the fish was worth too yeah. much money and it it was the politicians who were setting the quotas for these fish yeah. the scientists were just kind of you know convenient beards yeah
1: so talk about those models so this is like sustainable catch basically models
0: exactly right? like, like
1: what can we how much can we fish and not kill off the
0: yeah population? so these are two there's two ideas that i target in the book specifically for how wrong they have proven to be with the benefit of hindsight the first is an idea called maximum sustainable yield And this is an idea that there's a point at which you're almost doing a fish a favor by catching it. You know, that there's only so much food in an ecosystem that fish will eventually eat themselves out and the population will stabilize. So why don't we just catch those extra fish? You know, we're so good Mm. for catching those extra fish and selling them and making (laughs) billions of dollars. And this was an idea that started in the 1950s. Uh, by a U.S. scientist, and eventually it was exported globally. This is the the basis as fisheries management became a career that you could go to school to learn. This was the prevailing theory. But the idea is that it started as a theory. It's not science. The science came later as mathematicians reverse-engineered the math to Mm. prove it to be correct. Yeah, seems like a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And then that was kind of just subsumed into history, and then all of a sudden, it's all you have is left, you know, this model. And so generations of fisheries managers were learning this model without really understanding the logical underpinnings of them. Yeah. The second is the two-stock theory. We talked about this a little bit already. With Mm -hmm. you have the two stocks, they're on either side of the Atlantic.
1: Never the twain shall meet. Never (laughs) the twain
0: shall meet. Yeah, but. Even from the beginning, you had data from Frank Mather, from Al Anderson. You know, these fish were moving across the ocean. And the two-stock theory is still how bluefin tuna is managed now. Even though for decades, scientists have said, you know, this is... Because it's honestly, it's been the best model we could come up with in order to protect the bluefin tuna on the U.S. and Canadian side. Because for decades, the Europeans, Spain, Italy, France, refused to reduce their catches. And there was rampant poaching, and there was catching uh, thousands of young fish. You know, you don't need to go get a PhD in biology to understand that if you're catching and killing all the young of anything... Mm -hmm you know, you're, you're really on a path to disaster.
1: Because that's still decent enough for canned tuna. Is that the idea? Like even, yeah,
0: Yeah, or in some cases, they would catch them, and if they weren't quite right, they'd just throw them back dead. Yeah. And it was true charnel, yeah. really. It was, and, you know, when you talk about the origin of the bluefin tuna fishery in Wedgeport, Nova Scotia in right. the 1930s, this was an era of sport fishery where... Of trophy fish, right? Think yeah. Ernest Hemingway, think *Old Man in the Sea*. Yeah. Kind of man versus fish, and a lot of the pictures you see from this time, you'll have dozens and dozens of six, seven, eight foot long fish hanging up side by side, suspended from beams. Yeah. And all those fish would be cut down and dumped or buried, uh. and a whole generation of breeding adults was decimated Wow. and because it made big money and because it was, you know, glamorous and people came from all over the world to Wedgeport to, to catch these fish.
1: Yeah. Well, talk about, I mean, talk about that because Wedgeport had a society moment there because of the bluefin, didn't it?
0: Yeah. So in Southwest Nova Scotia, I think kind of across the water from Maine, there's a town just south of Yarmouth called Wedgeport.
1: Mm-hmm. Shaped like a wedge, is that? Shaped like a wedge. (laughs) Perfectly named. Very
0: literal. Um, (laughs) It was primarily settled by Acadians. These are the first French settlers to the region who were deported and eventually came back. And so it's predominantly French-speaking. And they have always relied on fishing and shipbuilding and farming and some kind of mix of those three to scrape by. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these towns were extremely impoverished because of this deportation that had happened years before. And so when an American department store heir named Michael Lerner, mm-hmm. he loved catching big fish. He was driving with his guide in Southwest Nova, mm-hmm. and they saw a picture tacked up in a gas station of this 1,100-pound tuna. Wow and they said we want to go there and they were told Wedgeport Nova Scotia was where to go and this was in ni- the mid 1930s mm-hmm. they <laughs> they said they flagged down a car that looked like the first automobile ever manufactured they drove it on these bumpy gravel roads into Wedgeport and they said you know we want to borrow a boat and in Wedgeport Luf and Tuna were called horse mackerel mm-hmm. and they were considered a huge nuisance because they would break the, fi- break the nets. They would eat the fish. They were wow. going after the fish that had been historically caught in this town. There was some harpooning of the fish that had been done and some locals had tried to catch tuna on rod and reel, but they're so big, they're so powerful. It had never been done before. And so Michael Lerner went out on the water an oar-powered boat, right? Think oars. They went out on the water. He drilled a chair into the boat. Imagine like actually fixing no. it with bolts. Yeah. Strapped himself into the chair. Had a rod and reel yeah. that was fifty linen fibers connected to piano wire. Mm-hmm and went out and caught the first two bluefin tuna that had ever been caught in Wedgeport on Rod and Reel. And he came back into port with these huge fish, and it was... In a rowboat. In a rowboat!
1: I can't can't even imagine that. Yeah! (laughs) Okay, yeah.
0: And the town went wild. Boys were screaming in the streets. The next day, a brass band accompanied them out Mm -hmm. on the water. It was so exciting. And as soon as he got to shore, Michael Lerner... Who's this rich guy who knows all these fishermen all all over the world sent telegrams saying, You won't believe what I found. You need to come here to friends of his like Kip Farrington, who was a writer at the time. And you had this influx of rich Americans. You had Babe Ruth,
1: no, you right.
0: had FDR, you had Amelia Earhart in like a beautiful little yeah, detail. Callback. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is honestly just like too good to be true, right? I'm, I'm learning about this. There's the most gorgeous museum in Wedgeport, Nova Scotia. Oh, right. If anyone ever has a chance oh. to go, it's connected to a little diner where they serve coffee and all the old salts kind of gather and gossip, predominantly in Acadian French. Perfect. And then you go in and there is so much beautifully cared for memorabilia and rods and pictures and there's a picture of the first uh, indigenous woman to catch a giant bluefin on rod and reel wow. in there from the 60s. it's just so gorgeous and it's almost no almost no one knows it's there yeah. like you ha- you have to be inside and it was like as I was standing inside there and the lights came on, it felt like this is what a journalist is called to do right yeah. is to find these these people and these stories and to dredge them out of history and say like look at this beautiful extraordinary thing you know you had fishing teams coming from cuba and from across europe one guy from south africa spent his life savings traveling to wedgeport to participate in the international tuna tournaments mm-hmm. that ran for decades
1: so it's all sport fish it's all guess. sport fishing yeah. no
0: not a you know sometimes the fish might be canned but at the time the fish was considered only good for cats and immigrants so can
1: we just talk about that for a second yeah. like cuz the romans were eating this like yeah, as yeah. we discussed like, yeah. thousands of years before what happened to, in the interim? It just it was it just fell off the menu? Or? Part
0: of the issue was, was an issue of taste. Yeah. You know, for the same reason lobsters were seen as poverty food in the Maritimes yeah. for decades. Bluefin tuna had this darker fleshed meat. You know, if you've ever had it in a sushi restaurant, mm-hmm. you'll know that it it it's almost purple, like a red purple. Yeah. When cooked, it is often much darker than other tuna like albacore or yellowfin. And that darkness, that kind of stronger flavor was seen as being unpalatable, hmm. at least in early North America. The, the Spanish have come up with, you know, different ways of cooking them and preparing them and a tuna stank on the plancha. But there was this real disconnect in Atlantic Canada of that, you know, this is a trophy fish. This means I am a True fisherman, <laughs> right, right. but then the, yeah, again they would just Dump you know it throw it pier. away, yeah. and eventually, they the fish stopped appearing in Nova Scotia in the sixties.
1: Just because of the sport fishing, that was enough. Or?
0: Well, their theory was that there was one idea that, um, and this was a rumor that was going around, is that a priest said in church one day, because it's quite a devout group Catholic, Catholic uh, group yeah, yeah. yeah there's a lot of churches along that coast and he said if you don't stop fishing on Sundays and come to church instead these fish will disappear
1: ah, so it was divine and intervention
0: so, <laughs> <laughs> that, so that was one of the theories yeah. um, another theory that some scientists have is that it was maybe a shift in climactic conditions hmm. or it also coincided with the arrival of Japanese longliners. Okay. Off on the Atlantic coast. And
1: this is now what, the 60s? The late 60s, the late yeah. 60s. Late 60s. Great. Which brings us to kind of some of my favorite parts of this story. Mm. Um, so, uh, which is the Japanese, and Prince Edward Island figures into that, and, and the Moonies. Um, so maybe, we, can you just start unthreading that for us? Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is both the major blessing and brutal curse of this book is that, it was like every book I opened, every Google search I did, there was this other incredible story that I had never heard of and that others hadn't heard of, and then how to kind of incorporate it into the story of Al Anderson and this one fish, yeah, right? Yeah. But it all started when I found an online book, a self published book by a, a U.S. Fisherman, fisherman named Alan Hokanson, mm-hmm. And he had been an early convert to the Unification Church right. when he was traveling throughout Europe and Germany.
1: So this is a South Korean, this is sort of Christian kind of culty
0: culty yeah. thing. Yeah, and at this point, it's almost pretty much just in in Japan and Korea and Europe. Right, and he had worked on some Alaskan boats, and he got recruited by some pretty girls, mm-hmm. and he had this fishing experience, and so when he came back to the United States, eventually. The Reverend Moon had decided he was going to start a tuna fishing fleet, and he was going to become the king of tuna. And he would catch these bluefin tuna and sell them to Japan and make millions of dollars. This was his dream. And this dream came true. Because he had Alan Hokanson leading his fishing fleet, they went out for two years and didn't catch a single tuna on Rod and Reel. But Reverend Moon was obsessed with catching these fish. He even gave a whole speech called The Way of Tuna. Yeah. And had plans about making fish meal and then making bread out of it and feeding all the unfed people in the world. This guy was... He was like Trump before Trump. (laughs) He kind of had all these grandiose plans. Yeah. And he ended up establishing essentially a monopoly in a lot of communities on the bluefin tuna market Mm -hmm. where, you know, they tried to, a lot of communities like in Gloucester, Massachusetts, they vehemently rejected the arrival of the Unification Church and the Moonies in their communities. And there were threats and there was violence. And eventually a decision was reached that, you know, we're not going to get through to the local population, through buying, by being polite or, you know, proving to them that we're just following kind of religious doctrine. And so they started raising the price on Mm -hmm. bluefin. They started saying, you know, we're going to, instead of charging 25 cents a pound for a 300 pound fish, we're going to pay a dollar, Wow! you know, and then eventually rose to $2 and eventually rose to $3. And the local fish markets that had established a monopoly on the price, there was kind of like a cabal that had put in this artificial cap on the price. All of a sudden, the demand in Japan is going up. You have all these Japanese fish buyers arriving on docks throughout Canada and the U.S. Northeast because the Japanese population of bluefin tuna had dried up due to overfishing. Right. This was not widely known globally. At the time, because this fish was still worth nothing in these communities, and so you had this huge commercial opportunity to catch these fish and sell them. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where Prince Edward Island comes in. Yeah, this is this is like enter Prince Edward Island. Yeah,
1: so another small town in the Maritimes yeah. is coming in here. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so in North Lake, PEI, mm-hmm. they had been catching bluefin tuna for a long time, and this was a rumor that reached an employee of Japanese. Airlines who came to North Lake and found all these huge bluefin tuna. And he also had a problem because all these Japanese airlines planes were arriving in North America full of VCRs and radios and TVs. Yeah. But then they were going back to Japan empty. So trade deficit basically. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. This is like bigger globalized issues, yeah. Capitalism, right? Writ large. And so he was tasked with filling the planes with something of high value that needed to be transported quickly. Yeah, And bluefin tuna was one of the theories. So he was in PEI. These fish were there. The issue then became, how do you get these fish to JFK Airport in New York? So he was approached by a local kind of mover and shaker who would pick him up at the airport with a bottle of hooch in a paper bag named Wayne McAlpine he was a former bootlegger there's so many characters yeah, it's like yeah, you yeah. just can't it, Yeah. and he's a full on character an embarrassment of riches truly yeah, yeah. and he would pick him up from the airport and they'd say oh we're going to figure this out and they approached a coffin builder yeah. a pair of brothers who built coffins That's fantastic. and they said can you build a box that will hold one of these fish and they said, you know, this is bonkers, but if you'll pay us, fine. Yeah. And they eventually filled the coffin with ice, put the fish in the coffin, packed ice on top, nailed it shut, put that on a truck, took it to JFK, and in August 1972, the first fish traveled from New York to Tsukichi Market in Tokyo, mm-hmm. and those fish earned the equivalent of $50,000 in today's dollars for a single fish. Wow. And that day is still known as the Day of the Flying Fish in, in Tokyo. Oh, no way. It has this reputation of the day that this market changed the world, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And And in places like Nova Scotia, in Prince Edward Island, in Gloucester, you know, along the eastern seaboard in mm-hmm. Cape Cod, you know, imagine what selling one fish for $50,000 equivalent would right. do. You know, that's that's your whole annual income that will buy you a car that will buy you a new boat. It will send your kids to college. Yes, it will it's
1: transformative. It's transformative. Right. Yeah.
0: And in the absence of any meaningful legislation to say, you know, there's only so many of these fish we can catch, you know, the story writes itself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We know where that's headed. We know where that's headed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so so when when do the problems become clear as far as that goes?
0: It was in the nineteen seventies. It's so interesting to look back through the historical records and to see the people who were sounding the alarm early mm-hmm. and how they were, you know, written off as hippie environmentalists mm. or pretentious academics. That, that there, the writing was on the wall quite early because there was this belief that the ocean's resources were limitless. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to remember that at the time, you know, our common understanding, the cod, this is pre-cod collapse. Yeah. This is, we (laughs) looked at the ocean in a different way. It was that we could extract and extract. And it was our entitlement as a species to just pull and pull and pull. And... This is how management decisions were made, right? It was more how to allocate the booty than to put any kind of responsible limits on its extraction. And so in the 70s, you had the work of taggers like Al Anderson and Frank Mather that was starting to sound the alarms. In the 80s, this is when fishermen stopped being able to catch their quotas. Mm-hmm. Which was a very early sign. like if you are given, say a hundred tons, you can catch.
1: They weren't even meeting that.
0: They weren't even meeting that. Wow. And so that's an indication to scientists that there just aren't enough fish out there to catch. But they would say, oh, they're somewhere else right now. and you know, they disappeared off the coast of Norway. They disappeared off the coast of Brazil.
1: So that's government saying that mostly, or is that like regulators? or
0: That's industry, yeah, industry mostly. As well. industry. Yeah, yeah. And this is it's very similar to, um if you there's an incredible book called Merchants of Doubt by mm. Naomi Oreskes who that she details climate denialism over history and kind of the role the corporations played this is very similar this yeah. is when when you have the writing is on the wall for industry but the the prospect that the industry could be shut down was so terrifying yeah those countries came together and formed an international governing body based in Madrid that because they didn't want government to put any regulations in. They right. said, you know, oh, we will do better. We will self-regulate. And this was in the 80s when they brought in this 45-degree dividing line down the, down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, it's everything. Everything's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when things clearly were not fine. it was There was horse trading going on. It was more an issue of it was a real race to the bottom that had been established. And there, for a couple decades, it was obvious that the bluefin tuna was on a track to extinction. Wow. And this is when you have the work of environmentalists like Carl Safina, Mm -hmm. who at the time was with Audubon. And I had an incredible opportunity to meet him and spend time with him in his home. And he shared photos and stories that he's never shared before. And to see that he just wanted us to see the fish as wildlife yeah as a as a real creature he he likened it to the extinction of the buffalo in the american midwest and saying you know how dare we let this happen on our watch again we know what's happening
1: that's such a great reframing, isn't it? It really mm-hmm. is. Yeah, that's very powerful.
0: Yeah, and it was very progressive. It was really ahead of his time. And but it came for him because he had grown up in Long Island, catching this fish, seeing this fish, in some cases eating this fish. Mm-hmm. And you know that's a part of the story that has never been publicly told until this book. That you know Carl, you know Carl's talked about his love and respect for for the fish and catching it and seeing it out on the water. But there's a photo in the book of a fish that Carl Cotton killed in the 80s in the book. You know, he's and there's this idea that Al Anderson, too, you know, he sold the occasional fish Mm -hmm. because it was worth a lot of money. And so do you have to be 100 percent complicit? Can you can you do good work and meaningful work and not be a perfect person? You know, does it make you? liable to not be pass some purity test the whole time and as I reported this book I realized that was one of the issues is that everyone has these motivations and these conflicts of interest but but all signs were pointing to disaster right and it was in the mid 90s that the seeds were kind of sown for for some of these communities working together For the fishing communities saying you know we will not stand for an extinction on our watch Mm. they started collaborating with scientists like molly lutkovich the scientist who first told me about amelia so in wedgeport they've worked with molly lutkovich for years and for a long time they were saying you know there are more fish out there than than the scientists are acknowledging and then the question becomes well where are they coming from are these eastern fish are these western fish a lot of it just has, comes down to getting over this idea that we as humans can fully understand something before we deign to protect it.
1: Right. So a shift happens, though, right? Yeah. I mean, so they're no longer on the path to extinction, which is, I mean, incredibly hopeful and, I mean, wonderful because we've watched in our lifetime so many species go extinct yeah
0: yeah well especially since at one point it was worth nothing yeah and then we had the boom you know i've talked to numerous fishermen who remember taking a giant bluefin and dumping it past the breakwater this is still in human memory and then they could become millionaires and then it was nearly extinct but now this is what's so exciting is that uh, some of this tagging data accumulated Mm -hmm. by people like al anderson and other scientists who were inspired by him yeah the this information is starting to become meaningful because it has accumulated worldwide, you know. You put in two tags, one year fine, but multiply that by many, many times and mm-hmm. that starts become kind of making a meaningful map of where these fish are and how they're moving and behaving. And that paired with the fact that, you know, I grew up save the bluefin, right? Hearing that, I don't think I ever ate bluefin. Mm-hmm maybe occasionally in a sushi restaurant, but it was always too expensive. Yeah, And you all of a sudden had this turning point where consumers weren't eating it, where, you know, criminal organizations that had been poaching this fish and selling it for millions of dollars, very often organized crime was involved, particularly in Europe, like in Spain and Italy. Mm-hmm. And you had Interpol crackdowns on the trafficking of this fish. Fishermen stopped catching and killing these tiny little baby bluefins, which, yeah, you know, duh. Yeah, <laughs> and all these scientists, some of whom hated each other and had mortal enemies, <sighs> and they would fight for grants, and that it all started to accumulate into a world where, in with southern bluefin, a population down near Australia and New Zealand they brought in a new management framework called Harvest Strategies. Mm -hmm. And it sounds really simple, but think of just, you take all the information about where the fish are and how many there are, you pop it into a computer, and it spits out, here's how many fish you should catch this year, next year, the year after that. Mm -hmm. That means the fishermen can plan their budgets. It means that the suppliers, it kind of solidifies the supply chain. And in this southern bluefin population, you saw populations starting to go up really fast, much faster than environmentalists ever imagined. And which meant that the fishermen who had limited themselves for that very short period of time, all of a sudden the number of fish they could catch, the amount of money they could make started going up. And so that all accumulated to late last year with Atlantic Bluefin at ICAT, this international governing body, The Atlantic bluefin tuna is now one of the most sustainably managed fisheries in the world. The stock is rapidly recovering.
1: So all the nations around the North North Atlantic are basically working with these principles
0: that were first... Exactly. Because they're all kind of voluntary signatories to this international agreement. And in some ways, you know, we're... The public thinks, you know, what the heck do these groups actually do? Like they're just getting paid salaries to just waste time flying around to meetings. Mm -hmm. This is like meaningful progression as a species to actually. And now you have the high seas treaty that's up for ratification. Mm -hmm. You have a move towards science based protection. Yeah. Of of both animals, like let's look at them as animals for what they are, these incredible, gorgeous, beautiful creatures, but also as a resource for how we're going to feed the population on a planet that's increasingly under these huge stresses and strains. And scientists like to say, you know, fish are the future of how we're going to feed our world. Well, it's like we need to build in a safety net for ourselves if that is indeed the case. And now it's to the point where I will eat bluefin tuna at my local sushi restaurant in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. I know right now Mallard Cottage in Newfoundland has a bluefin tuna special. These are, as long as the fish are caught on rod and reel or harpooned, it's, it's better than a lot of other fisheries out there right now, including the small oily fish that we've been told so long to opt for, right? They say mussels and oysters and small oily fish, Mm -hmm. small oily fish, those forage fish populations, those have collapsed in the North Atlantic. You know, if you're, if you're at a restaurant and your choice is mackerel or bluefin, bluefin is now the more responsible choice. And I talked to numerous conservationists who say that is the most insane thing to wrap their heads around. And I think in some ways the public I didn't believe it when I first heard it. Yeah. It feels weird to even say out loud. Right. I wrote a book about it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so, I mean, but so is that now that is that model now transferable across all the species in the oceans? I mean,
0: that's that's the dream. That's the dream is that you take the politics out of it and you get great data, you start understanding where these fish are spawning, what areas you need to protect. You know, you start shutting down the purse saners, you know, a lot of the, the methods that destroy the kind of fundamental ecosystems of that, that support all these other bigger fish. And, you know, right now, almost every bluefin tuna that's out there, unless it's like an illegally caught fish, those fishermen are given tags in their quota and they're given a certain weight and they put the physical tags in and now in Europe you can track your fish by QR code.
1: <laughs> you can
0: you can find out, you know, the fish that I was I went to Portugal and Spain reporting this book, every single fish loaded into those facilities the same day within hours, they're flash frozen to -60 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. They're put on, you know, giant freighters and sent all over the world. Each fish has a QR code.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Well, I, I want to encourage everyone to read this book because it, it is just a fascinating tale. And as you say, I mean, we've touched on some of the characters here, but you really need to read it to dive into There's some amazing characters all the way through this. And it's an incredible story, really. And I, one I didn't know or was, you know, even, you know, I, I eat tuna at sushi restaurants like a lot of people. But thank you for, you know, bringing this to us.
0: Yeah. Thanks for your interest. Yeah, it's been a real real joy of my career so far. Yeah, I'm very lucky.
1: Tell us the name of the book again.
0: The book is called Kings of Their Own Ocean, Tuna, Obsession, and the Future of Our Seas.
1: Awesome. Well, Karen Pynchon, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, David. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please remember to rate and review us where you listen. It really does help. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you have a picture of where you've been listening to Explore that you'd like to share, please tag us on social media with it, on Twitter, we're at Cangeo and at MacGuffin David. And on Instagram, we're at Cangeo and at David.McGuffin. You can also email us explore at Canadian Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin.
0: I think
1: right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the Earth, and it's just been fantastic experience, and I just can't wait to get back and start telling people. about We have now. Simpson about June 10th, with a fur brigade, consisting of a
0: number of yacht boats, each man by 10 voyageurs. For us, it means that in or history. is very strong, heavy. A little low over every inch of the country
1: that it could be. We're hoping that he would fire at it. Oh, I guess 160. I'm a first for Canada.